Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Y'all, this So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast is officially entered in its first ever podcast awards. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would head over to podcastawards.com and sign up. Once registered, you can nominate the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast for both the Grammar Girl Education category and the Best Female Hosted podcast. Again, that's podcastawards.com and sign up to nominate the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast for the Education and Best Female Host categories. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Here at Team So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist, we are on a mission to reach as many people as possible, and your nomination will help us with this goal. We have until the end of this month, that is July 2021, in order to get all the nominations in. So please go over and click the link today. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What is a lake's favorite subject? Algebra. I saw a boat out on a saltwater lake. It was saline. My guest today is Andrew Bromberger. He is a diatomist, or someone that studies diatoms, currently working for Environment and Climate Change Canada. His research has been featured in National Geographic magazine. In this episode, we chat about how something so tiny it can only be seen with a microscope influences the entire planet and how we, in turn, influence it. Andy also breaks down the similarities and differences, surprisingly few, of oceanic work and working on the Great Lakes. Please enjoy. Andy Bromberger, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat Great Lakes with you today. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk about the Great Lakes, especially for people who probably don't think about freshwater very often. (laughs) So let's chat a little bit about some of the similarities. I mean, you think marine biology podcast, you think ocean, you don't necessarily think lakes, right? But when we say great lakes, I mean, these are enormous bodies of water. And we we were kind of chatting a little bit before about how when you're researching on them, you don't go out in like little canoes or rinky dink little boats, like you're actually going on big research vessels. So what are some of the other like similarities between like the lakes and the oceans? Well, I mean, they're, they're all connected, right? Um, so the lakes eventually do flow down from the Great Lakes and out the St. Lawrence River into the ocean. So there are connections that way. Um, but we also have a lot of the same sorts of things that we study, right, from bacteria and algae uh, up to zooplankton or small sort of grazing animals mm-hmm. uh, to small fish to big fish. Um, we don't have sharks or marine mammals or that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, but we, we have a very similar food web structure. Um, we talk about things like nutrients and sunlight and how those can, you know, affect the food web or the structure of the food web or how much energy is going into the food web. 
and we have a lot of the same problems. Um, you know, whether it's pollution from from nutrients or toxic chemicals or habitat degradation uh, to more recently plastics. Interesting. Yeah, when we you know ocean plastics gets such a big publicity headline, but we don't really hear about it so much on the Great Lakes. Um, so it make, makes total sense that it would still be an issue there because it's an issue even on land now and in the air. Yeah, it's it's getting to be a bit of a hot topic here and we hear more and more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some of the same sort of dramatic pictures that that people who are studying oceans have, you know, of, of a bird that would have decomposed and had a, a, a belly full of, of various sized plastics. Um, there's a lot of concern that they may, may be changing the way that, that chemicals move through food webs. Um, I have more of a concern that, you know, we get a lot of, of fibers in, in inland waters and, and the Great Lakes. There are a lot of plastic fibers mm-hmm. that can actually mimic algae. Um, and I study algae, so I've, I kind of wonder how many um, plankton are, are basically ingesting these fibers, thinking that they're filamentous algae and, and basically consuming things that aren't really appropriate food sources. Mm. Yeah, that is concerning. So are the fibers typically from clothing? Is that kind of where they mostly come from? Yeah, it's mostly clothing. You know, we have a lot of, of things uh, around the Great Lakes. You used to see a lot of styrofoam. People would have used it for insulating boathouses or, um, you know, to keep their dock afloat or that sort of thing. So we used to see a lot of styrofoam particles and a lot of bigger plastic particles. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the recent surveys have, have been showing that, I guess, just by numbers, most of what's out there is is fibers that are coming from um, from like polyester fabrics and washing your clothes. Mm. That's the same with the oceans. It's just, you know, you have being, being that the oceans are that much bigger, there's that extra dilution factor. Right. Um, but, you know, the Great Lakes, uh, a lot of, I mean, they are huge and the offshore areas are still uh, very much like being offshore in the oceans. Uh, you get massive waves, uh, which is why we have to be out in research vessels as opposed to small boats. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, uh, you know, you can't see land for, often days at a time if you're out in a research cruise. Um, you know, that being said, uh, a lot of it still, because they are smaller, uh, function a little bit more like coastal areas of the ocean with respect to pollution and that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, you see evidence of it more than you would, you know, if you're way out in the middle of the Pacific or something like that. Um, but it is kind of consistent with being, uh, I'm trying to think kilometers versus miles for, for, uh, American parts of the audience. But, you know, if you're hundred, 120 kilometers offshore, it's about the same as it would be to be that far offshore in the ocean. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you just mentioned big waves and I read that you learned to surf in the great lakes on Lake Erie and people, when you think of lakes, you don't think that you can surf on lakes. Um, <laughs> And I love that you learned to surf on there. I've, I've spent some time on the shores of Lake Michigan and there's some surfing there as well. And it kind of boggled my mind the first time I saw it. Yeah. I've actually surfed more on the great lakes than I have in the oceans, despite having lived in South Florida for a few years of my life. Um, we, our waves are a little bit different in some ways. Um, I, I like to think that if you can surf great lakes waves, you're probably pretty good at surfing anywhere. Um, <laughs> Because we, we do get big waves, but the period of them, the, how far apart the waves are, if you will, is, is a lot shorter. 
Um, so you're really on steep waves, kind of running into the next wave. Uh, and our best waves are in the winter with winter storms. So, you know, you're typically surfing with, uh, if you're like me and you have, have a beard, then you have icicles hanging off your beard and you're wearing a wetsuit. It's quite frequently below freezing outside. Um, but the water uh, in November and December anyways is, is uh, probably about 34 to 40 Fahrenheit. So the water is still liquid uh, and you can still surf. And it's actually really pretty being out there in the snow. I'm sure it's beautiful, but 34 to 40 Fahrenheit, that is, that's really cold water. <laughs> it is, um, but people, you know, have, the way that people love the ocean is the way that a lot of people love the Great Lakes. Um, and for those of us who grew up around it, uh, you know, you just kind of want to be in the water or want to be around the, the lakes. Yeah. Um, so whether it's surfing or sailing or fishing or, or being at work, uh, there is that just desire to be on the water or in the water. Yeah. So was it this desire that led you to pursue a career studying the Great Lakes or the, the tiny critters of the Great Lakes? Uh, it was it certainly figured into it. You know, I, I grew up swimming uh, in beaches in Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. Um, and Lake Ontario is just about 300 meters north of where I am right now. Uh, and, and Lake Ontario is, or sorry, Lake Erie is, is uh, a few tens of kilometers to my south. So I grew up surrounded by water. I actually live really close to where I grew up, which is, is kind of funny considering how many different places I lived in the meantime and how much of the world I've gone and seen through the course of, of working on water. Um, but it was actually, I, I think a lot of people have the same sort of story. I, I had a few really good teachers along the way. Mm. And I actually had a, a grade four teacher who used to bring in Jacques Cousteau movies for the class to watch. Um, and I was really fascinated by just, just scuba diving and being underwater. And, and that was the first thought that, uh, you know, I'd like to be a marine biologist when I grow up. Um, and then I think it was later on, I, I just, um, you know, as the environmental movement really started to take shape uh, more and more in the, in the mid nineties, uh, there is a, a lot of focus around the Great Lakes um, and things like invasive species that came in and, and changing water quality. Um, and so I, I thought, well, it'd be kind of neat to, to learn about the Great Lakes. You know, I still wanted to go and swim with dolphins and sea turtles and that kind of thing. Um, and I still really enjoyed being in the ocean when I could. Um, but it seemed like there was a, a need for more people to pay attention to the Great Lakes. And I think that's still true today. Yeah. Um, and, and it is kind of funny to me that I've, I've worked on freshwater systems all over the place and, and always kept gravitating towards back towards the Great Lakes. It's pulling you in. It's a calling. <laughs> I guess you could say that. So why diatoms? What, what led you to study these tiny little microscopic bits? That was a, another roundabout thing. Um, I, I think my experience with diatoms before going into graduate school was the same as many people have in maybe high school or, or undergraduate classes. Mm -hmm. um, I think most people, when they're learning to use a microscope, there's a standard commercially available slide mm -hmm. uh, from Fisher Scientific or whoever sells <laughs> it. 
that just says mixed diatoms. And it's um, for those who, who don't know what diatoms are, they're, they're single celled algae that basically make a, a silica shell, or we, we say it's their little glass house that they make for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from species to species, these glass houses or glass shells that we call frustules vary um, in size and shape and, and patterning. And they're really intricate and beautiful. So the, um, when they're cleaned, you basically have little bits of, of really finely ornamented glass that are great to look at under microscopes. And they're really interesting to, to see and a, a great way to teach people how to use microscopes. So that was my understanding of, of basically what diatoms were um, before going into grad school. And then my uh, advisor, who was one of my undergraduate profs, um, said, you know, how would you like to go to Indonesia and work on some lakes? And I thought that sounds really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, there are all these weird diatoms there, and we think a lot of them are new species. Um, and, you know, someone needs to work on this and, and figure out if they are new species. And, and basically, it was in an area that's a, a biodiversity hotspot for the world where everything is, is endemic or native to just that area. Mm-hmm. And the diatoms are no exception. Um, so we went and described a bunch of new species from some lakes in Indonesia um, and, and then I think like others who work on diatoms, I, I really became fascinated with them just in the, they're, they're interesting little algae <laughs> in and of themselves, mm-hmm. but they're also really good for telling the story of, of what's going on in, in water in, and they grow in kind of any water. You can find diatoms in a puddle. You can find diatoms in the ocean. Um, but most species are pretty good at tracking environmental conditions. So based on which species are occurring in whatever body of water, we can learn something about the environment that's there. Um, and it's different, you know, if you're in the tropics where it's, it's always going to be warm and sunny and, and climates are very stable, um, they'll diversify and really track their habitat characteristics. You know, you can find within the same couple square feet of, of um, lake bottom, you'll find completely different species living on a twig versus a rock versus the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in those tropical environments, there are things that can be endemic or, or limited in their distribution to sort of one tree stump on one shore of an island in one lake, and that's the only place they occur in the world. Um, here in temperate areas around the Great Lakes, um, they're a little bit more generalist. Um, you can imagine if you have ice at some points of the year and different daylight periods and high and low pressure systems and water that's sometimes cloudy and sometimes clear, um, as a species, you should get used to dealing with whatever nature throws at you on any given day. Okay. So the things here we can use to sort of track what conditions were prevailing more than we can use to, to sort of differentiate habitat. Um, but then diatoms as a whole are, are interesting and important because they make a lot of, uh, a lot of the world's oxygen uh, that, that we breathe. So we used to, as diatomists, we would say, take one deep breath, now take another. And one of those two breaths was made by diatoms. 
So the trees in the Amazon kind of get all the credit as being the lungs of the world, but it's really um, the algae in water bodies and oceans and, and especially diatoms that are really kind of doing the heavy lifting as far as, as producing atmospheric oxygen that, that we and all other animals and everything else depend on to breathe. Something so tiny that you need a microscope to see, and this is what we rely on. It's amazing. Yeah, and so you can imagine just the importance of, of things that we kind of take for granted, you know, these little tiny algae, um, you know, changes in, in algal communities and, and how productive they are, how much they photosynthesize and produce oxygen, little changes in, you know, things that are that numerous in all the water bodies of the world can have really important implications for sort of the entire ecosystem. And, you know, similarly, the Great Lakes, as, as one-fifth of the world's surface fresh water, um, it's just an enormously important resource. And small changes to, to an aquatic system that big can have really resounding effects on everything else around it. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. So I'm curious, did you get to name a diatom species while you were describing new ones in Indonesia? Uh, 11 of them, actually. 11 of them. Do any of them have fun names? Um, no, we, we tried to, we tried to be kind of proper. Okay. Um, <laughs> there are, I think two of them that we named after people, uh, okay. colleagues who had, you know, been sort of, uh, spent 40, 40 years of their career working, uh, in the same place. And so there is one that was named after a colleague for her, 40th anniversary of working with the Canadian Museum of Nature. Yeah. But most of them, you know, we, we, if you look at the, the names of things, it's all Latin and, and it right. seemingly makes no sense. Um, and more and more, you know, people are sort of Latinizing uh, English words or, right. uh, you know, giving tributes to other people or um, there is famously a, um, a species, a lab species of fruit flies that uh, a researcher found was really, you know, overly susceptible to ethanol poisoning and they called it Drosophila cheap date. So <laughs> I mean, people have fun with it, but we, we really tried to use, you know, the Latin roots of, of um, different structures of, of these diatoms that we were seeing. And some of that was the, uh, with the Indonesian ones, we were seeing structures that had never been seen on any other diatom. Um, mm -hmm. And it was things that were really used to attach themselves to the lakes were really steep sided. Mm -hmm. um, the, the one main lake in the system is, is 600 meters deep. So around 2000 feet deep. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a huge lake. It, it's one of the deepest lakes in the world, but it's, um, you know, compared to compared to the Great Lakes here. It's not a big lake. So the sides of the lake are really, really steep. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're a diatom trying to make a living by eating light, essentially by photosynthesizing, and you become detached from the place that you're hanging on to on the side of the lake, you just sink. Um, especially when you have tropical areas and, and, you know, we talk about water temperature a lot. And in the tropics, water temperature and water density is, is sort of a... Um, a variable or a stressor that really controls how a lot of things function. Mm -hmm. So as water gets warmer and warmer, it gets less and less dense and it, and it does so exponentially. 
So the, the difference in density between water at, at zero degrees, oh, that's a bad example because it all changes at four degrees. The difference <laughs> in density between five degree water and 10 degree water is much smaller than the density difference between 20 and 25 degree water. Okay. So when you get really warm water, anything that is going to sink is effectively heavier compared to the water than it would be at cooler temperatures. Mm. So in those tropical systems in Indonesia, if you're not attached to the side of the lake, you're just going to sink. So we saw all of these crazy new structures that the diatoms were using to be able to attach themselves to, you know, rock or to uh, mangrove roots or, or to plants or that sort of thing um, right. that we didn't see in any other lakes in the world before that. And, and they want to attach themselves to stay close to the surface so they can photosynthesize. Exactly. Yeah, that's wild. So the best, the, how you identify them is through these structures on their, what was it called? A fresh jewel, their glass house. Yes. That's really wild. I've seen some diatoms on the microscope. I think most biologists have, and they're, they're beautiful. Some of them truly have these amazing, beautiful structures. And then when you have the backlight of the microscope behind it, it kind of has like a crystalline glow to it. They are pretty. Yeah, I mean, there are people who will actually arrange them into symmetrical patterns um, and then photograph it using polarized light because it's the, the polarizing light from the microscope that makes them all glow mm -hmm. sort of every color of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. um, so people who have a lot more dexterity and patience than I do <laughs> will actually <laughs> arrange the diatoms of different species that all have these different shapes into really intricately pa intricate patterns and then photograph them with polarized light um, and I mean, it's a fantastic uh, form of art. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have a lot of respect for anybody who um, can, can, you know, work with things at that fine a scale because a, a big diatom is still, I, I'm, I, you'll have to translate this into inches at some other time for, for your American listeners, but like a, a, a good sized diatom on average is one twentieth of a millimeter long. Okay. So, they're really, really tiny. Like this is, you know, you're kind of talking about um, if you took a little slice of a, a strand of your hair right. and looked at that in, in sort of cross section, the, the average diatom would be smaller than that, you know, several times over. So they're, they're really, really tiny. Yeah. That's so crazy to think about. So when you, when you finished your uh, graduate degree, your master's, did you know that you wanted to go straight into a PhD? I, I, I did. Um, did you always know you wanted to get your PhD? I, I did. Yeah. I, I okay. knew I wanted to, I, well, I knew I wanted to be a biologist um, and I knew that I wanted to be the kind of biologist who was trying to find new knowledge as opposed to going into resource management or going into, you know, working for the park service or consulting and, and those are all great things to do um, as well. But and it, and it really is sort of a specific mindset to be, uh, you know, the kind of scientist who's trying to develop new theories or develop new knowledge. And to be able to do that for a living, it's, you know, the, your PhD is almost like a union card. It's your, it's your <laughs> ticket in the door. Um, so I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that was just kind of what I had to do to, to do it. You know, that being said, uh, in retrospect, I kind of wish I'd taken a year or two off in between because there is no, no real 
break. Um, you know, as, as you know, and I'm, as I'm sure a lot of people have mentioned on your podcast before, uh, it really is a, a commitment of sort of all of your time and energy and, and uh, efforts for a, a good number of years to obtain your PhD. And then after that, it's usually a few postdocs and, and then trying to find a, a permanent job. So it is certainly a big commitment and, and not something to be taken lightly. Right. Yeah. That makes good advice. <laughs> it's not something we've taken lightly. I think there are still a few people out there that do PhD on a PhD on a whim and then they get into it and are like, hmm, this is more than I bargained for. <laughs> there are and there are people that uh, do it on a whim and, and uh, kind of make it their life. Um, yeah. I know another diatom researcher who's a retired FBI agent who decided to do his PhD uh, describing diatom species in his retirement. <laughs> uh, Why not? <laughs> so much for having a relaxing retirement. <laughs> it's, it's quite a thing to take on, you know, after, after having a full career in which, you know, he was, uh, I believe actually a pretty celebrated, um, agent of the law. Uh, so it's, I, I think some people just, you know, have it in them that they always need to have that, that new project. And, and that's great. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny that it, it, yeah, there are those people who do it on a whim. Um, and if, if you can, great. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Especially if it's something that interests you and you're passionate about. And I mean, I, I can see marine biology or biology in general is one of those things. Um, I, and especially when it's a specific organism that you want to study, you know, we all sort of fall in love with the various organisms or, or various animals, especially, especially the really charismatic ones. Right. Um, and I can see how, uh, how alluring it is for people to, you know, want to know everything about whatever aspect it is of, of the organism that they, that they're passionate about. And a PhD is, is certainly a great way to do that. Um, and I guess depending on what, what the goal is, it's just, uh, is it worth the devotion of how much energy it, it requires? Um, but if you're, if you're really passionate about that thing then, and want to sort of make a life out of it, then it certainly is. Right. Yeah. Good points. So back to your diatom studies, you mentioned earlier, and I have a personal interest in, in this because I live in South Florida, that you were in the Everglades for your postdoc. What were you studying? Uh, we were actually, it was in the time that they were going to um, basically start trying to naturalize water flows uh, through Everglades National Park and further north. Uh, from Lake the, Okeechobee? From Lake Okeechobee down through Okay. Uh, the actually it was as far up as the Kissimmee River, and then down through Lake Okeechobee, through the water conservation areas, and and out through Everglades National Park. Right. Um, and so, living in South Florida, you, you probably know that uh, through agriculture and flood control, there are just zillions of of canals and levees all over South Florida, and and. Uh, the long and short of it is that with sea level rise and climate change, there's not enough fresh water flowing south into the, I guess, southernmost reaches of Everglades National Park. Mm -hmm. And so you get things like saltwater encroachment that's really changing the, the mangrove habitat um, and the, the sawgrass prairie habitat in the southern part of the state. 
Right. Um, so there were efforts, and I believe they're still underway, to renaturalize water flows. Yes. Um, but some of that comes at a cost because, you know, we've had 80 plus years of very intensive agriculture in South Florida. Um, many of the canals are now um, full of a lot of non-native species. The vegetation <laughs> patterns have completely changed. So the thought is, as you start opening it up and letting this, this really heavily impacted water flow into the pristine interior of Everglades National Park, how is that going to change things? Mm-hmm. Um, and the one really sort of um, big thing that, that's starting to be well understood, but sort of poorly understood, um, is what the impact is going to be on periphyton. And periphyton is basically the algae and bacterial communities that grow on and around plants or other surfaces. And Everglades periphyton is really unique. Um, in the in most places in freshwater phosphorus is a limiting nutrient so the more phosphorus we have basically the more algae we have mm-hmm. um everglades periphyte and the algae that grow in that um the periphyton mats will will dissociate and decompose if there's phosphorus uh, above a pretty low level in the water mm. so letting this phosphorus rich agricultural water uh, flow into into the sawgrass prairies um, and the the waters therein would be potentially really harmful and we don't know what this would do but we do know that periphyton is sort of the building block of all of the the everglades food webs mm-hmm. um, so we were trying to find out you know ahead of time what what some of these changes might be um, looking at areas where they were selectively letting water flow uh, into that part of the system and, you know, it, it being the way that South Florida is, uh, the project had some preliminary findings and then money went elsewhere, <laughs> um, which is frustrating, but it's, it's reality. But we did find that, you know, it, it's sort of the water depth and how isolated little, little pockets of water were from each other really determined how the diatom community structure would work. Um, and that was reflective of what sort of periphyton was there, um, because you'd get certain types of periphyton that were characteristic of uh, areas that dried down and then were reflooded. Uh, there were ones that were characteristic of deep water, ones that were characteristic of, of high nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, but then how, I guess, how um, much a periphyton community in any of those sort of pools conform to those, I guess, rather disparate categories would depend on how isolated that little pool was from everything else. Mm-hmm. So as you started flooding the system and having water f- flow through more and more, everything got a little more homogenized. Um, so whether that's good or bad, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, uh, it was interesting to see how the diatoms could be used to track even something as seemingly mundane as, as, you know, letting water flow back the way that it would have a hundred years ago. Right. Logically, it makes sense. I mean, like, you know, thousand foot view, it makes sense to put, put it back the way it was, but you're right. We've been doing something different for about a hundred, almost a hundred years. Then it definitely makes a difference. Yeah. I think it's something that philosophically, you know, we all, have this thought that pristine systems are the way that they were 
before European colonization or, or whatever the case may be. And that's sort of the gold standard that we hold up often around the Great Lakes for, you know, what is an unimpacted system? Can we put it back to the way that it was, say, in the 1600s? Right. Um, and a lot of times we find that now we can't. Um, mm. You know, we've, we've kind of done so many things that we don't really consider that it makes it really difficult to put things back the way they were. On the other hand, you know, we'll, we'll do things like uh, with algae conditions, we'll say, you know, we want to have no harmful algae blooms. We want to have mm. nice, clean, clear water. Um, and we strive to do that often in places where it never was that way. You know, you could go back a thousand years and it may have always just been a place that, you know, from nutrients in the, in the soils naturally, or for things that flow out of forests, um, or just, you know, bodies of water that kind of sit and get warm all the time and always have, mm -hmm. it may be that we, we can't put this back to what we think we want. Uh, what we want is either impossible now or, or never actually existed in some of those places. Um, but it's good for us to be able to know that. And, and, uh, it's another kind of neat thing that we can do with diatoms is since they have their little glass houses, um, those frustules are really well preserved in, in lake sediments. So we can take core samples and the deeper you do go down in the core sample, the farther back in history you are. Um, so we can use sediment cores as sort of time machines to go back and, and look at what the conditions might've been like, uh, several hundred or even thousands of years ago. And we can use that to then sort of guide what we think we want to do management wise and, and what uh, sorts of restoration we might want to do in a system to, you know, can we get it back to where it was? Is this possible? In a lot of cases in the Great Lakes, you know, we, we want to have low nutrient status. We want to have not much algae. Um, but when we start looking at what diatoms were around back when there wasn't much algae, they were also ones that indicated much cooler water. And so we're never going to get those back. It's just simply too warm now. Yeah. I'm, so I'm curious what, what you're finding. Some of the impacts that you've seen on the Great Lakes that you're talking about that just aren't like you're not going to be able to get back. Um, and then chat a little bit about before we hit record, we had a really interesting discussion about how like warming waters in the Great Lakes, it actually gets warmer and it's impacting diatoms. And so I want to chat a little bit about that yeah well it, it's interesting though we'll get back to that part but what we have been finding is um you know we, we as we started doing some of these paleolinology studies so paleolinology is is that going back in time and looking at lakes from the past um we've been finding you know we thought we were going to go in and see sort of the height of of back in the the middle of the last century there was a time that the great lakes were considered dead um, and it was a phenomenon that we call cultural eutrophication or just like dumping a lot of nutrients into the lakes and it, it caused a, a lot of um, algae growth and often harmful algae growth um, a lot of that at the time was associated with really poor controls on on sewage um, and also with phosphorus in laundry detergents and, and dish soaps and that sort of thing. Um, so back in the early 70s, we stopped putting phosphorus in detergents and we started bringing better sewage treatment plants online on both the Canadian and U.S. sides of the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. um, and for a long time, it seemed like that worked and we actually did see a recovery. Um, so we were thinking, you know, we could go back with 
well, and I should point out that recently we've seen a resurgence of, of heavy algae growth in a lot of the Great Lakes and things looking a little bit like they did back in the middle of the last century. So clearly we haven't really solved the problem. <laughs> so we thought we could use uh, paleolinology approaches and go back and see the sort of rise of cultural eutrophication and then um, the recovery and then see you know what's going on now and see if it's the same thing now that it was 50 years ago, like the same causes, the same diatoms. Um, and we saw that, but what we really ended up seeing overwhelmingly more dominantly than that was, was a signal of, of warming that's mm -hmm. lasted for the last 115, 120 years. Um, and so we've seen the diatom community become increasingly dominated by species that are more characteristic of, of sort of subtropical lakes that say stay stratified. So stay warm at the surface and cold at the bottom kind of year round. Um, and that's not what the Great Lakes have historically been. Um, the other thing that we've seen is, is diatoms getting smaller and smaller. Um, so it's, it's been a change both from species that are characteristically large to being replaced by smaller species um, and also shrinking of individuals within each species. So some of that is due to longer growing periods um, and some of it as well as just due to what we were talking about with the Indonesian lakes. As water gets warmer and warmer, the water is lighter and lighter. And so it's harder for diatoms to stay afloat. Um, so smaller cells actually require a little bit less turbulence in the water to keep them up where they can photosynthesize and bigger cells tend to, tend to sink. So we've seen a shift to smaller and smaller diatoms. What we don't know is what's that going to do to the food web. Right. Um, and, you know, we know historically sort of what plankton ate, what diatoms uh, and what fish liked those. Um, but now as we're seeing, you know, smaller diatoms and new species and increasing, uh, well, overall decreasing diatom biomass and increasing blue-green algae biomass, uh, in a lot of cases, we don't know if, you know, these are sort of dead ends for the food web. And so aside from, you know, making a lot of oxygen and, and that sort of thing, diatoms are really, really good food sources and carry a lot of important nutrients for aquatic food webs. So changes down at the very bottom of the food web with what diatoms are there may eventually impact you know, uh, the, the sport fish that people really like to go out and catch or go to the store and buy. Right. And so the Great Lakes, especially Western Lake Erie is, is the most valuable freshwater fishery in the world. Um, and I, I can't remember how many, you know, millions or billions of dollars it is per year, but they're really important, both recreational and commercial fisheries on the Great Lakes. Um, and that could be impacted if we see these changes cascading up through the food web. What are some of the fish that they catch there? Um, well, historically, there were lake trout uh, in all the Great Lakes, and that was sort of our big native cold water salmonid or like salmon-like thing. Um, and there's another species called walleye. Uh, it's and walleye are delicious and highly prized, highly prized sport fish, um, and. In most of the lakes back in the middle of the last century, when things were really bad, 
between between poor water quality and overfishing we basically knocked lake trout out of of most of the great lakes mm. and about a hundred years ago maybe more than a hundred years ago we started stocking pacific salmon uh so chinook salmon coho salmon um and rainbow trout uh which is technically a, a salmon a pacific salmon as well um so those all do a little bit better in in slightly warmer water than than our native brook trout and lake trout mm -hmm. um so they've actually kind of taken over as the dominant sort of open water uh salmonid predators in the lakes um and there are naturally reproducing populations of those and they're they're also you know highly prized sport fish but even those you know we've, we've seen a lot of changes with uh, the introduction of of non-native species uh, you've probably heard of zebra mussels yes. and quagga mussels. Mm -hmm. So in Lake Michigan, uh, right now there are so many quagga mussels and a quagga mussel is just a slightly larger relative of the zebra mussel. But there are so many of them, they, they can effectively filter the entire water column of the lake in a, a period of a few days when, when the water is mixed in the spring. Right. Um, so that's taking a lot of the algae out of the water and potentially disrupting the food web. Um, we also used to have uh, large populations of alewife. It was an introduced species, but the salmonids really liked eating them. Mm. Uh, as the water has gotten warmer, we've had really major crashes of, of alewife populations mm. uh, and a lot of native um, sort of smaller whitefish that the bigger salmon used to depend on. Mm. Um, so there, those have been replaced by something called a round goby and gobies live on the bottom and, and they're able to eat zebra and quagga mussels. Um, so there is sort of this new energetic pathway forming, right. but the things that were typically cold water, you know, open lake predators are now having to go into shallow areas to, to basically hunt gobies and replace their, their traditional prey with these gobies. And so the energetics of having to, you know, chase around small prey in a complex warm water habitat as opposed to alewife out in the open lake. Mm -hmm. uh, it's energetically really different. So it's another thing that, you know, we really don't know um, how all these food web connections are going to play out right from the bottom with, with diatoms and algae all the way up. Everything's kind of changed and, and we're seeing where it's going to, where it's going to land eventually. Yeah. That's really interesting to see how things are shifting as, as new things like zebra mussels and uh, are introduced and shifting the water quality and the external pressures like temperature too. Yeah. That's a lot to think about. Entire food webs being rearranged. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, a system in flux and mm -hmm. you know we think about that for for such a big system and it's it's tough to comprehend because other than the oceans there really aren't any bigger aquatic systems on the planet than than this one and the, it's mind-boggling to even try to contemplate you know if you had that kind of food web structure reorganization happening in the ocean there'd be a complete outcry Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing the same thing, you can imagine it, changing the, the base of that food web, changing the diatom community of the Great Lakes would be like changing the tree community of the Amazon mm -hmm. or the plant community of the Amazon. It's sort of the, you know, the primary producer. 
So this is a, a huge, huge change that's important on a global scale. Uh, the thing that I notice and, and kind of frequently complain about is, mm -hmm. is the fact that um, people who've grown up in the Great Lakes Basin, there are a lot of us who really love it, but then there are a lot of people who just kind of take these lakes for granted because mm -hmm. they're not exotic and they don't seem you know, like my Indonesian lakes or like the Everglades or like the Great Barrier Reef. But they are still, if if you talk to people from anywhere else in the world, they'll tell you how weird and wonderful and exotic having big lakes really is. Right. Uh, so it's something that we need to pay a lot more attention to than we do. And they are really, you know, for anyone who has a chance to visit that hasn't, they are really wonderful places to come and see. And it, it you think that you're looking at an ocean until you jump in and swim around with your mouth open and taste it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've been, like I said, I've been on the shores of Lake Michigan and you do, you definitely feel like you're looking over the ocean. Um, but it's much colder. <laughs> well, much colder than the ocean that I'm by. How about that? Yeah. Uh, so we talked a lot about, about uh, harmful al algae and harmful algae blooms. What, what defines a harmful algae though? They're, well, in the ocean, they're different than in lakes. Um, okay. In the ocean, you guys get a lot of uh, uh, red tides and that sort of thing. So that's a right. dinoflagellate. It's one kind of algae. Carina um, brevis. <laughs> yeah. You also get a diatom uh, called pseudonychia, and it makes demoic acid, which can be responsible for paralytic shellfish poisoning. So okay. it's another harmful algae. Um, in lakes, we, we don't really have toxic dinoflagellates. Um, we do get uh, pseudonychia, the diatom, but not very often. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's more of a brackish water thing. Um, but we get cyanobacteria, and they're sort of colloquially known as blue-green algae. Right. Um, historically, you know, we, we've always classified algae by their pigments, uh, and that... If you classify a lot of things by their pigments, it's it's not really a great thing. Um, <laughs> you know, fish people talk about, you can have fish that'll change their coloration at different kinds of the year. Right. So if you're classifying fish, you use structures. If right. you're classifying algae at the broadest level, you can actually use pigments. Um, I used to do a, a thing with students where I, I had them type in blue-green fish and you get a bunch of pictures of completely unrelated fish that are all the same color. And then if you type in, in Google image search, uh, blue-green algae, you actually get things that are biologically related. Um, and then the funny thing was I had them type in golden brown algae, which are the diatoms and other things related to diatoms. And you get pictures of diatoms. If you type in golden brown fish, you get a lot of pictures of things that just came out of the fryer and look delicious. <laughs> so it's a, a really neat thing that this is, you know, the one set of organisms that we can use coloration to, to tell them apart. Right. Um, so the, the blue-green algae or cyanobacteria are not like other algae. They're technically bacteria, but they photosynthesize. Um, and there are a small handful of, of species or groups of species that live in the Great Lakes and elsewhere in freshwaters throughout the world that can make a lot of different toxins. Um, and these range from anything from skin irritants to liver toxins to neurotoxins. 
Um, and every year, you know, fortunately, I don't think we've had a human death around the Great Lakes from it, but every year we get a number of dog deaths and, and cattle deaths and uh, so livestock poisonings. Um, and for, for humans, it can be anything from, uh, you know, skin rashes to earaches to, um, to like stomach uh, illnesses, gastric illnesses, Mm -hmm. uh, to fairly serious neurotoxin poisonings where, you know, people can end up in the hospital. Um, and the, the typical thinking has been that it takes a lot of warm water and a lot of phosphorus to generate harmful algae blooms. Um, but lately we've been finding more and more that it's not necessarily phosphorus. You know, we, we think of the, the sort of poster child for, harmful algae blooms is Western Lake Erie and it's surrounded by like almost all agricultural land. So there's just lots and lots of fertilizer and nutrient running off into the lake and it gets warm. And so every, every year we have these big blooms. Um, A few years ago, it was a large enough and toxic enough bloom that the city of Toledo actually had to shut down their municipal water supply for several days. So you can imagine the economic impact of a a city of half a million people having to say, sorry, you can't drink the tap water because of, of, you know, these tiny little organisms floating around out in the lake. Right. But we've now seen harmful algae blooms in all five Great Lakes. And that includes big, cold, uh, not impacted Lake Superior Mm -hmm. Um, around Minnesota. In far northern Minnesota, there's an area called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And this is an enormous uh, tract of space that has basically no infrastructure, uh, no houses, no cities, and only allows canoe access. Um, And harmful algae blooms have turned up there. Uh, We have a similar area, Algonquin Provincial Park in Ontario. We have blooms there. Uh, and even in the far north, in Great Bear and Great Slave Lake, we're starting to see these these cyanobacterial blooms popping up. Um, so it's not, you know, strictly a, a heavy nutrient thing because these are all systems that are really unimpacted. And it's not even strictly just a warm water thing um, because as much as these lakes are are warm compared to what they were a hundred years ago, they're still cold compared to you know oceans around South Florida. Right. Um, so it, it's it maybe even just a, they're changing quickly and, and how warm it is relative to what it once was might be triggering some of these things, but ultimately we don't, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of the problem is that these blooms can pop up so quickly and then disappear so quickly that we don't really even have the greatest record of where they're showing up on the landscape or how often they're showing up or how big they are, um, or how toxic they are. So that it's a, an area where there's a, a lot to learn. Right. Um, and, you know, we kind of need to learn it relatively quickly because they are a, a danger to human and environmental health. Yeah. So what is, we're kind of butting up at the end of time here, but what does, what does it look like to study these guys? Like when, what does the field day look like? And then bringing them back and actually like analyzing what you're finding. Uh, well, it starts early in the morning as most <laughs> field days do. Um but studying studying harmful algae blooms, uh, 
there are kind of two schools of thought. The one school of thought is that, you know, you catch them in action. And so that typically means you go to lakes where you can reliably find blooms that are persistent for a long time and try to study the basic biology of, of the organisms mm -hmm. and try to figure out, you know, what makes them grow, what makes them produce toxins. Uh, the other side of it is, is trying to look at lakes that do or don't have uh, harmful algae blooms and try to figure out, you know, what the difference is between lakes that do have them and lakes that don't. So we would typically go out and, you know, collect all the sort of water quality parameters, temperature, oxygen, pH, nutrients, um, and collect water to bring back and both look at under the microscope, but we're also moving into doing genetics and genomics. So trying to figure out what genes are there that may code for toxins uh, and whether those genes are associated with being triggered by certain water quality parameters. Mm -hmm. So we also do something called transcriptomics. So we look at how much of the gene is being expressed. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times you'll have a, um, an algae that has sort of the blueprint gene, I guess you'd call it, to, to make a certain toxin, but will live quite happily without making that toxin until something triggers it. So some of it is just trying to figure out you know, what the factors are that, that turn that switch on and, and have these things start producing toxins. So we go out and collect a lot of water. And then the backside of it is bringing it back to the lab and people will spend a lot of time, you know, filtering and processing samples to send for, for genomics work or spend hours and hours and hours looking through a microscope and, and identifying these things as, as best we can um, through the microscope. And then diatoms coming back into it as well, because the harmful algae don't really preserve well in the sediments. Right. Um, and we're starting to think more and more that they may be just sort of generalists and, and happy growing in, in just about anything. Mm. Uh, so we can look at the specialist diatoms to really get a better indication of what's going on in the water. And hopefully that'll tell us uh, a little bit a little bit more information or a little bit more of a different aspect of what's going on than what we can learn just by looking at the harmful algae. Right. So you can look at the diatoms that are in the same water samples that you've collected for the harmful, harmful algae. Harmful yeah, they live, they live side by side okay. and compete with each other for light and nutrients and space. Okay. That makes sense. So one of my new favorite questions to ask is what would you do? What projects would you do if you had unlimited funding? And last person I asked this to wanted to have all the projects. So I'm going to limit to three, but if you just have one, that's fine too. Um, well, there was actually something that, that we were trying to do and uh, um, ended up not being able to get it funded. <laughs> uh, Funny that. You know, it would have been an expensive, expensive project. Um, but around the Great Lakes, you know, one of the things is, is this idea that harmful algae blooms are showing up in places that we never would have thought. Um, and the algae community is changing the, the, you know, diatoms, the, the harmful things and, and, you know, the tons of other, uh, species and types of algae that are out there are, are changing through time. Mm -hmm. And we really, I don't think, have a good handle on, on why they're doing it or where they're doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and the tough thing is, you know, we can, we can sort of go out afterwards and try to look at what was there and, and link it to what may have been going on at the time. Um, but we can't 
you know, we can't go and ask the algae what they're thinking or <laughs> what they're feeling or whether they like or don't like what's going on. Um, but by doing transcriptomics, we can start to do that. Um, and so we can start looking at, you know, different algae from different places and basically take a snapshot of what they're doing in the last five minutes by looking at what genes are turned on and what genes aren't mm -hmm. and try to relate that to, uh, to some of the environmental pressures. Um, with some colleagues in Minnesota, I'm, I'm still working uh, on an EPA Great Lakes monitoring project where we've started doing that, but it's really limited. It's, it's twice a year at 70 something odd sites. Mm -hmm. um, and you can imagine for, for an ecosystem as big as the Great Lakes, 140 samples a year, give or take, doesn't really give us the greatest indication of, of what all the algae are doing at, at any given point in time. Um, so there's a, a, you know, a round of sampling in April and one in August. And the thought is the April one historically was just after the ice was out. And now it seems like it's a couple months after the ice is out. Mm. Um, and the summer one is, is when the water is really stratified and warm at the surface. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what happens in between, we don't know. Um, and there are basically, you know, one or two samples, depending on the time of year taken, for each site at different, like it's a upper water column and lower water column. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a whole lot of the lake that we don't know exactly what's going on and, and big chunks of time that we don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so unlimited funds, I think it would be good to just be, you know, uh, doing that multiple, multiple times over and yeah. really getting a better resolution of what's going on through the lake so that we, we would be able to say, okay, uh, yeah, the algae community is changing, but this is why it's because these guys like this and these other guys don't like it. And, and that's something that we haven't got a good handle on, I think in, in any system, but the Great Lakes probably less than most. I did read in the Nat Geo article that you do, you have done some winter sampling, like actually drilling through ice and collecting diatom samples. Is that yeah. part of a different project? Uh, it, well, it's all, it's all linked together. Yeah. Um, in temperate regions up here, I mean, the Great Lakes don't freeze anywhere near as often as they used to. Uh, and back in prohibition days, people would drive cars across the ice from Canada to the States, full <laughs> trunks full of booze to bring in during prohibition. Um, and, and now, you know, there are years that icebreakers don't really have to run. So the, the amount of ice on the lakes has changed. Uh, last winter, I think, was one of our lowest ice years in, in a long, long time, if not ever. Yeah. Um, and last summer, the Great Lakes hit their warmest surface temperatures that had ever been recorded. Mm. So it's changing that way. Mm -hmm. um, but historically, you know, these lakes have been frozen for four to six months a year, right. um, especially up north around Lake Superior. And we don't know how important that is or what happens down there and how that affects the lake for the rest of the year. So this is a bit of a race against time in a way in that we don't understand how important winter is or, you know, if algae that grow under the ice are jumpstarting the, the springtime food web. And there are a lot of really, I guess, big, juicy, really nutritious diatoms that do grow under the ice. Mm -hmm. So as we lose ice, are we going to lose that? And are we going to lose ice to go and study before we really have a good grasp on, on how important that season is? Right. 
Yeah. So yeah, we do go out and, and drill through the ice and, and conduct experiments underneath the ice. It's a, uh, it's an interesting time to be out, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Big parkas for that one. I'm still, I still have this hilarious image of like your bootleggers from Canada coming down and <laughs> bringing, bringing booze across the lakes in cars like here. And where I live, we had them coming across from the Bahamas in boats and like pseudo pirate style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boats and, boats and small planes, the, the cocaine cowboy days in Miami. Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny to think about. So one of my very favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be a really fun day out in the field. You had a lot of fun drilling holes in ice and things happened, or it could be uh, everything went wrong or maybe not totally right. And it makes a really great story now. Oh, there, there have been lots and lots. I, I think, you know, like I said early on, and I think you mentioned as well, um, on the Great Lakes, we, we go out and research vessels rather than small boats. And I guess there are two related stories with, with some colleagues from Minnesota. Um, and it, I, I was mentioning when we were chatting before we started recording, it's an interesting mix of people who grew up working on small lakes and, and sort of graduated to working on big lakes mm-hmm. uh, and other people who were trained in oceanography and then found their way to the Great Lakes. <laughs> so there are a lot of techniques that merge and a lot of people who are, are sort of either going from small systems to big or bigger systems to small. Um, and we, we had a, a colleague in Minnesota who was an oceanographer and had only ever worked on, on research vessels. Um, and in on, Ontario, in northern Ontario, there's a place called the Experimental Lakes Area, which is a few hundred lakes that the government set aside um, 50 or 60 years ago for doing whole lake experiments. So you can basically pick a lake and manipulate it any way you want if you get approval for it. Um, and I was up there with this colleague a few years ago. And in small lakes, you go out in very small boats and you lower your probes over the side by hand. And so one person controls the depth of the probe and the other person writes down the, the results that are, are being spit out because often we, we don't use logging probes for, for those little lakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we handed my colleague a book and said, you're going to record the data. <laughs> And he looked at us and said, I'm, I'm just used to people handing me a USB stick when I get off the ship. I didn't, didn't know people did it this way. Um, but the same colleagues, you know, working on a, on the research vessel Blue Heron, which is uh, University of Minnesota Duluth's uh, research vessel. Um, there were, I believe, six of us who all got hired around the same time and, and um, everybody at the Large Lakes Observatory in Duluth, as part of their startup package as new faculty, they, they get some ship time and everybody compiled ship time. Um, I was at a different institute, but I got invited along as the algae guy. <laughs> and so um, we thought we're going to do all these fantastic things and we we're really ambitious. And um, what we didn't consider was that the, the ship has room for, I think eight crew and six scientists. And there, so six scientists, we said, this is great. We can all be on the ship at the same time. Uh, but then we, we tried to do so many things and we didn't consider that there are no bunks for technicians or students. Oh. 
so we all decided to help each other out, but it meant that none of us really slept for probably three days. Uh, and a colleague of mine was on deck doing filtering at, I think, four in the morning. And uh, he looked over and said, the moonrise is really spectacular tonight. And all of us looked around to try to see where the moon was and then realized that it was actually the sunrise that he had seen. And he'd been on deck for so long that he, he, we just told him, you have to go to bed. You've been out here too long. <laughs> You're saying things. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It's a great story. Like how it highlights, you know, how, how the field can be sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I mean, when, when you enjoy what you do, um, you, you tend to put in long hours and, and that was a, you know, a good, a good trip with, with good colleagues and, and uh, a research vessel where the crew is really helpful and, and, you know, helped us get a lot of stuff done, but it, it, it was a lot of hard work and long hours. Um, and I think, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, there are times that, that you, you put in a lot of work and, and then there are times that you're just writing and having a, you know, otherwise kind of normal day by, by sort of corporate North America standards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I like to leave the audience at the end of each episode with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take away from your episode today? Um, well, I, I think the big message is that the Great Lakes are a system that we've really taken for granted, um, and it, it is hugely important. It's, you know, a fifth of the world's surface freshwater, and it's, it's right in the middle of North America, so it supports uh, enormous economies. Um, and it's changing, and there aren't enough scientists with enough time to really keep track of how it's changing or how you know, lakes in general are changing. Um, one of the big things, one of the big problems has been harmful algae blooms. And, and again, you know, we can't be out on every lake all the time to catch every bloom. So we don't understand them. Um, but there are um, ways that you can report it. Um, and it's, I, I think it's good even just, you know, visit your lake be, and be vigilant and uh, take pictures, record what you see. Um, and if you do want to report it, um, apps like iNaturalist will allow you to report things like harmful algae bloom occurrences or just any blooms that you see. And, you know, there may be a scientist who sees it on the back end and, and keeps track of it. Um, there's also a website called cyanos.org. So C-Y-A-N-O-S.org. Um, and it's a website that's dedicated to tracking cyanobacterial blooms. So they have an app on their site as well that you can download for your phone and directly report harmful algae blooms. And so those kind of things will, you know, I think not only increase people's awareness of lakes uh, in general and the Great Lakes in particular, um, and kind of give you an appreciation for how wonderful and how rapidly changing some of those systems are. Um, but it'll also create a lot more uh, data for scientists like me to be able to go and, and understand, you know, where these these things are occurring and how often they're occurring. And because we we just don't have the resources to have people out there to do it. So okay. we have to rely on on citizen science. Yep. Talk about all the time how important citizen science is, especially for people that want to potentially have a career 
in science or in the natural sciences. And yeah, I love it. Great way to get involved. Great ask. Thank you. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, or learn more about you and your work, where's the best place to do so? Uh, you can probably Google me and it'll take you to the <laughs> Environment Canada uh, or Environment and Climate Change Canada website. Yep. Um, and because it's the government, uh, my email and contact information are public domain. Um, and yeah, so if people have questions uh, about lakes or algae, I'm, I'm always happy to, to answer. All right. Great. Thank you. Well, Andy, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat about the Great Lakes. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, it's great that uh, lakes got featured on a marine program. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.